Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting June 25th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Princeton astrophysicist J. Richard Gott talks about presidential electoral polling, of course, as well as some fun thoughts about the realities of time travel. If you've listened to the past few episodes, you know that Scientific American editor Mark Alpert has a new novel out called Final Theory. J. Richard Gott was Mark's advisor in college. I had heard he was working on polling data analysis, so when I ran into him at a party on June 10th to celebrate the publication of Mark's book, I asked him to talk a little bit about the polling work as well as his time travel thoughts. Toward the end, you'll hear a third voice, that's Scientific American editor George Musser. Dr. Gott, tell me about this research that you've done in, of all things, election results and polling data. Well, uh, Wes Colley and I decided that we would like to try to apply median statistics to polling to try to predict the electoral vote in 2004. And uh, the reason for this is that the median is very good when you have different results, and one of them might be discrepant. So uh, Zeldovich, the famous astrophysicist, once said um, that um, uh, in, in Russia, they didn't make watches very well. So when friends got together, they would compare the time. And so one would say, it's 5 minutes to 10. The other would say, it's 10 o'clock. The other one would say, it's 4.30. So he say, take the median, take the middle one. <laughs> this is like the statisticians who go duck hunting. You, you must know that story as well. What is that? Four story? statisticians go duck hunting. One shoots high, one shoots low, one shoots left, one shoots right, and they all say, "We got them." <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shoot in the middle. <laughs> take the median. This is this is what we did. So we applied this in 2004, and um, the interesting thing was that. Uh, a lot of states, crucial states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Florida, were too close to call in an individual poll. So there'd be results like uh, Bush is leading Kerry 49 to 47 percent in Ohio, but it's a 4 percent margin of error, so Ohio is too close to call. They said all those three states were too close to call, but we just kept adding up who was winning in those states over a period of a month. And then you'd find out that uh, Bush was significantly ahead in Ohio, significantly behind in Pennsylvania, and significant, Bush was significantly ahead in Florida. So those states were really locked up about a month ahead of time, and they never changed. There wasn't any trend going on. So we were in the end, our method of just saying, who's ahead in a given state? Well, the person who has the most polls who's ahead in the number of polls. Forget about the margins of error. Forget about the average, calculating the average. Just ask who has the most wins in a given state. And that worked to over the, over the previous month to give us all the states correctly except for one, which was Hawaii. So we calculated the electoral vote very accurately. And whereas many people thought the election was too close to call, or Kerry might even have a victory, we correctly called it uh, in advance. Now, how do two nice astrophysicists wind up getting involved in the, uh, <laughs> the gutter world of politics? Well, we'd use these median statistics to... Uh, investigate the question of the acceleration of the universe. The universe is expanding faster and faster. 
And a team of scientists, uh, two teams of scientists had, had found this result. Um, but we wanted to check to see whether it was true uh, using the median statistics. They measured brightnesses of supernova, and they said, are these supernova that we're seeing too bright or too faint given a cosmological model? And they found that the cosmological model that fit them the best in the average was the accelerating model. But we wanted to check and see that that was true for the median because it might be that a few of those supernova were way off center and they were pulling the average up. So what we found was that it was true for the median as well. In other words, you needed that accelerating universe to fit the data for most of the supernova. In other words, most of the supernova were at the wrong brightness if the universe's expansion wasn't accelerating. And that was an important confirmation of what they'd uh, previously found using the average. Why don't we just real quick explain the difference between average and median for anybody who hasn't taken their, their statistics classes for quite a few years. Well, in that example I gave, um, 5 minutes to 10, 10 o'clock, and 4.30, the average is slightly afternoon, isn't it? <laughs> you average those three times. But the median, the one in the middle, that's 10 o'clock. And, and, and that's probably right. <laughs> right, right. Um, so the, your, your paper is not actually going to come out until shortly before the election, but it is that's getting true. some attention already. That's true. Well, uh, Neil Tyson took our method and he applied it to the current situation. He was interested in seeing how Obama would do versus McCain and how Clinton would do versus McCain. And if you uh, gave the states to who was ahead in the median poll, you put states where you had no polls or ties just the same way that they went in 2004. There were 19 states with new polls. And what they showed was that currently... Uh, at that time, um, Obama had uh, 252 electoral votes, and Mrs. Clinton would have had 295. This is somewhat surprising to people, I think. And we looked at a similar set of data from, like, April 26th to May 26th, over, over a month period. Um, for example, uh, Mrs. Clinton was leading McCain three polls to nothing in Florida, and leading two polls to nothing in Ohio. Uh, Obama was behind two to one in Ohio and behind in Florida three to nothing. He was also behind McCain in Michigan by three to nothing and McCain was tied with Mrs. Clinton and, and so that had been a democratic state before so went to her. Um, we just did this uh, recent, did a recent update on this and I think um, uh, Obama has, um, uh, I think he went up to 256 electoral votes. Um, the close states are really Virginia, which is now a tie. McCain had been leading two to one in that state. Uh, Obama is winning in Colorado, in Iowa, and he, both he and Mrs. Clinton are winning the popular vote. So um, Obama is ahead in the popular vote, the median statistics say. And the electoral vote, although he's behind, if he picks up a few of these states, he could be ahead. But he's currently behind in Michigan, which is the state the Democrats won before. So uh, this also tells you uh, where the candidates might profitably spend their time. 
So um, Virginia is a closed state. Missouri is a closed state. Um, New Mexico, Obama's ahead in. He's, he's, he's not ahead in um, uh, Nevada. Um, so um, it tells you where they might campaign. Now, one of the things that we noticed, a difficulty, if you will, with the electoral system, is that uh, we noticed that um, the close states are inordinately important. The, the states last time of Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, the candidates spent a lot of time there. Uh, they made like 80-some-odd trips to these states, you know. And so states like California, New York, Texas. Illinois, Texas, uh, they, they hardly visited these states, maybe except to raise money. But um, the, the, all the interest in the campaigning is focused on the few close states where it might make a difference. So if it was just by the popular vote, uh, the candidates would campaign all over the country, you know. But uh, here in, in the electoral system, it's very important what happens in the, in, in the close states. And in the end, you may have only two or three states that are really truly up for grabs. And as people get better at polling using our method and others, well, then um, they can rightly and will focus their attention on those key states. And indeed, Obama has been recently to Virginia. <laughs> and uh, so he, he, knows that's, he knows that's an important state. We're putting this up on his, uh, West Collie's website. It's called CollieRankings.com. He's one of the um, several people that do computer rankings for the football teams that decides which team gets to go play in the national championship. So this, um, within a week or so, I'm sure, we'll, we'll put up an automated method that will show you the results as of that day and show you how the candidates are doing. You can see um, uh, uh, which states they're up in the polls and which they're tied in, and uh, we'll keep a total of the electoral vote as it goes along, and we can see whether uh, it stays the same or, or changes. And how do you spell Collie? C-O-L-L-E-Y. CollieRankings.com. CollieRankings.com. Interesting. Now, I want to switch gears. You've done some kind of fun writing about time travel and general relativity. Um, so what, what's the bottom line on time travel? Are there, are there time travelers among us and they're keeping themselves secret? Well, well, no. That's one of the interesting things we found out. Um, time travel seems to be possible in Einstein's theory of general relativity. It has a number of unusual solutions, including the black hole solution, which you've heard about, uh, the expanding universe solution, which you've heard about. Um, but there are also solutions to Einstein's equations that allow time loops to occur where you can circle back in time and visit an event in your own past. And, and whether or not you can actually realize those solutions, we may need to know the laws of quantum gravity. That's how We know how gravity behaves on large scales, on macroscopic scales, but we may need to know how gravity behaves on microscopic scales. This would be new physics that we haven't done yet. But Einstein's theory of gravity, which is general relativity, which is the best theory of gravity that we know, it does allow these time travel solutions. These are only like wormholes or cosmic strings. These are only solutions that super civilizations could really even contemplate. And one of the things we learned about these solutions is that 
you can't if you build a time machine by twisting space and time so you can circle back and visit an event in your past, you can't use the time machine to go back before the time machine was created. Really? That's so, pretty interesting. So if you bend space and time up in the year 3000 so as to create a time loop, um, you might use it to go from 3002 back to 3001. But you can't use it to come back to here because that's before the time machine was invented. So the reason, it's a sufficient explanation for why you don't see any time travelers at the Kennedy assassination filming the event in white spacesuits, you know. You don't see that. You don't expect any time travelers to go back before the first time machine has been invented. And we haven't invented one yet, so you don't expect to see any. But 100,000 years from now, the place might be lousy with time travelers from 100,003. Yes, one, one of the things that, that can occur is that even though you inspect the past very carefully for time travelers and never find any, when you enter a time machine, suddenly a time traveler to the future can show up and say hello. Interesting. Now, in a, in a real but possibly trivial sense, we're all time travelers right now, right? Well, one way, and well, we're always going toward the future. Right. So the the um, uh, you can time travel toward the future fast. We know that this is possible. Einstein's theory of special relativity, which he did in 1905, showed that moving clocks tick slowly, and so um, astronauts. Uh, the the uh, the most the greatest time traveler we have so far is an astronaut named Sergei Krikalov. He's been circling very fast for months about, and months. About, about 800 days. He was in orbit, going 17,000 miles an hour. So he is right now uh, 1.48 of a second younger than he would have been if he had um, uh, stayed home. So um, that means that when he came back to the Earth, he found it 1.48 of a second to the future of where he expected it to be. So this man has actually time-traveled 148th of a second to the future. <laughs> now, now, we all do that to an incredibly infinitesimal event when we take a jet plane across the country. That's true. It's just uh, y- y- you might get a few nanoseconds, you know. If you, go, if you go around the world on a trip around the world, and they've actually done this where they've sent a jet plane around the world and come, and when they come back, it's about 50 billionths of a second to the future of where it's aged 50 billionths of a second less. Now, now, if you would go fast, faster, let's say you went at 99.995% the speed of light, 500 light years out to the star, um, Betelgeuse, and then came back 500 years, the Earth would be a thousand years older. But you have only aged 10 years. So this is how you can visit the world a thousand years from now. It's just very expensive. And it's a one-way trip. Oh, no, no, no. You could go out and come back. No, it's I mean it's a expensive. one-way trip into the future. Oh, yes, that's a, yes, yes. To come back, to come back, then you need one of those time loops. You actually need to twist space-time. And this is, this is possible if space and time are curved. So Magellan's crew left Europe, and they went west, 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 around the Earth, and came back to Europe. This is impossible if the Earth is flat. 
But it's possible if the Earth is curved. So with Einstein's theory of curved space-time, such loops coming back are actually possible. But we haven't built any one of those yet. Good stuff. Uh, what are your? You have any personal time travel plans? Well, people often ask me, "Well, where would you go visit?" Well, I say, "The past." Well, we we already know what happened in the past. So, if you wanted to know what Cleopatra looked like, well, actually, there's a picture of her on a coin. You know, so you, I would visit the future. So, and we we know you can do that if you go fast enough. So. I'd like to go about 200,000 years in the future and see what had happened to the human race. Were we still around? Were we extinct? What were we up to? And the, the, the first words you'll say are, get your hands off me, you dirty damned apes. <laughs> you could be in for a few rude surprises. Out of curiosity, if you then did that initial experiment where you went a thousand years into the Earth's future and you only aged 10 years, you could take the entire Earth, send it to Betelgeuse and back, and then you'd finally be in sync again. Uh, that's true. One of one of my uh, students once wrote a science fiction story. Uh, I had them write science fiction stories based on real science, and he said, um, well, there'd be a Broadway play, and the first act took place, and the second act took place 20 years later. They reassembled the actors... They sent the audience off on a spaceship very fast and back. So they only aged a day, you see. And then they'd see the second act, the actors old. And they'd send the audience away again and bring them back. And, and then the third act, they were, the actors were 40 years older. So you could use it for that. <laughs> That's a Tony Award winner, no question. Absolutely. J. Richard God also has done some thinking about using probability theory to estimate the length of time a particular thing or species will survive. There is a lot of interesting material on that in his Wikipedia entry. The June 6th Neil Tyson article that got mentioned was in the New York Times. Just go to their website and search for Richard Gott, G-O-T-T, and it comes right up. The article is called Vote by Numbers. By the way, if you go to the Collie rankings, you'll see that in the days after Gott and I spoke, again, we spoke on June 10th, there was a big change in the electoral vote analysis based on swings in polls in Virginia and Ohio. Again, the polling data is at www.collyrankings.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a University of Florida professor has designed what should be a working flying saucer. Story two, researchers have pinpointed the date of a solar eclipse described in Homer's Odyssey. Story three, half of the world's 24 million known chemical compounds fall within only 143 basic shapes. And story four, the German cockroach is making a big comeback in urban environments. Time's up. Story one is true. Florida engineering professor Subrata Roy has designed a prototype flying saucer. Electrodes on the surface would ionize the surrounding air into plasma. Passing an electric current through the plasma would create force, which would in turn get you lift. So there would be no moving parts. You'll still lose your luggage. Story two is true. Researchers have used other astronomical clues in the Odyssey to pinpoint an eclipse mentioned in the epic to April 16th, 1178 B.C., 
They published their report in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. For more, check out J.R. Minkel's article on our website. The Odyssey, of course, tells the story of Odysseus's attempts to find Ithaca, which ain't easy, just ask anybody who went to Cornell. And story three is true, half the known chemical compounds share only 143 basic shapes. That's according to a study in the Journal of Organic Chemistry. The authors suggest that by evaluating compounds with shapes that fall outside the group of 143, chemists might discover novel rings, linkages, and atomic groupings with potential applications in medicine or materials. All of which means that story four about the German cockroach making a big comeback is totally bogus. Because the German cockroach didn't have to make a big comeback, it's going strong. It's the roach commonly found in homes. However, a couple of days ago, I evicted an American cockroach from my house. The humongous American cockroach keeps German cockroaches as pets. I captured the roach in a large jar and put it out in the street where it carjacked a Mini Cooper. Some web searching turned up the fact that the American cockroach really prefers the South for its hot weather, and that sightings in New York City, where I live, though not rare, aren't all that common either. So with global warming, we can perhaps look forward to gigantic roaches in more of our homes. I'll tell you another cockroach story. There was a great researcher named Berta Scharrer. She used the American cockroach as her research subject. Now, the American cockroach, from the tip of the antenna to the back end, it's got to be a good three inches long. And uh, I based that on my, my personal observations this week. So Berta Scharrer was working with American cockroaches. This is back in the 1940s. And there was a cockroach infestation in the building in which she worked. It was an infestation, however, of German cockroaches. Nevertheless, the all-male faculty blamed Berta for the infestation, despite the fact that the species that she worked on was not the species that infested the building. Just one of the things that she had to deal with being a woman scientist way back when. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Visit Siam.com for the latest science news, videos, and slideshows. And sign up for the Daily Digest at Siam.com slash daily. I did. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Me, oh my, oh, what a girl.